Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Samantha Derrick, who is the founder and executive director of Plant Futures Initiative. And she has an amazing story about how her quest to study the food system as part of her graduate studies led to the creation of an academic course and her plans to have that course taught in universities all over the country and help introduce students in all different fields to ideas on how to transition the food system away from animals. That's damn heroic. How cool is that? Really, really impressive. Just, you know, letting one thing lead to another and thinking really big. And I love this interview. This course sounds amazing. And, you know, she's still in the beginning stages of, of, of getting it out there. But I didn't even know you could do that, create courses and get it in different schools. It's all kind of complicated. Uh, I mean, academia is kind of complicated, not this course. So yeah, really, really cool. And it's not, the course is like available to people at different levels and in different fields of study, which, you know, that you see so little of that in academia. Usually everybody's in their silo and that really makes things hard to accomplish. Anyway, this is a really cool interview, really interesting stuff. Everybody pay attention. Well, and speaking of interviews, So last week we aired our interview with Andrew Lipstein, and this was one of the interviews that we actually recorded live. We record an interview live every month that our flock is invited to join. So if you want more information about that, go to ourhandhouse.org slash support. But anyway, so this interview was quite the topic of conversation in our circles in the past week. Andrew Lipstein, of course, wrote the novel The Vegan, which I absorbed, like, I loved this book so much. And it was so fun because I think Jocelyn tagged him on Instagram when we were just chatting about it and he responded. And, and you know, why, why wouldn't he? I don't know why this, like, boggled my mind, but I, I was so excited that he responded. Because when anybody pays attention to vegan advocacy, it's, like, so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was like, of course, I'll be on the podcast because we asked him and and I I was so thrilled because this book, I think, is fascinating. And so he joined us and it was a very different type of interview. He was way more engaged in a particular in a particular form than many of our guests in that he kept asking us questions, too. Well, also that he's not vegan. I mean, you, well, yeah, you, I'm burying the lead. You're dropping the. the yeah, <laughs> that was the that was the expression I was going for. You're burying yeah. the lead. Yeah, he's not vegan. And also he had all these questions. Right. It was more like he was interviewing us than we were interviewing him in some ways. At times. Sure. And so, you know, we've said this before. We'll say it again. We interview vegans ninety nine point nine percent of the time. There have been exceptions to that when we're covering a particular wildlife issue or companion animal issue, and we cannot find a vegan who is working on that issue. But most of the time, the person is vegan. Now, this to me felt like a giant exception because he wrote a book called The Vegan about a man who goes vegan. I don't want to give away the book, but like there is a lot in the book that reflected to me ways that I frequently feel. And it has a very shocking ending, which I'm not going to say what it is, but we wanted to discuss that. And we do give a spoiler. We say at some point, if you don't want a spoiler, stop listening at this point. So we do tell you when to stop listening. But anyway, the responses that we got in the last week were 
all extremely passionate and all extremely opposite from each other. There were two camps of people. There were people who absolutely, hands down, loved it. I am one of them. And there were people who were like, only interview vegans. So we pulled two emails that we got... (laughs) I mean, I understand the how dare you. I, I don't mean to say I'm like, I think that's a crazy point of view. I've always said like, you know, people have frequently encouraged us to have non-vegans on the podcast. I mean, I don't think I'm resistant to it, but are we going to bring them on to advertise about how it's okay not to be vegan? Or are we going to just bring people on to attack them, which nobody's going to come on to do that. You know, maybe not attack them, but just completely disagree with them. And I don't sure. feel like doing that. Like, that's not our vibe. Why put defenses of veganism on on the podcast? So I totally understand that point of view. I did think this was a little different, but you know, maybe it wasn't. Well, I think it was different too. So so we pulled out two different messages that we received. I'll read the first one. Uh, okay, here's a message we got. By the way, I am two thirds into the podcast and I have to say this is probably the best one I have ever listened to. He has made me think in ways I never have before. His explanation about not being vegan really helped make sense to me of why a lot of good people don't do it to a point, of course, because while I agree that theoretically giving away half of my income is the morally right thing to do and I choose not to do it, I think that that's a more complicated choice because I don't view humans as innocent. Most are assholes and why should I give my money to assholes? And it's hard to differentiate. And not eating animals is a hell of a lot less painful than giving up half my income. Yeah, well, that got into uh, like, you know, the issues, the issues of like, you know, the kind of things that it makes you think of, like, why is veganism so much more obvious than than other good things that people could do, like give away their income. But the real point, I think, is that this is probably the best episode I've ever listened to. Right. <laughs> That's that is pretty high praise, unless he hated all of the other ones. Right. And why don't you read this other message? Yeah, thanks. We got. I get to read I get to read the I'll the one read that the other it. one if you want. No, I I don't okay. mind. Sure. I like the first line. Our hen house is one of my top five favorite podcasts. Okay, stop there. Yay. Yeah. Okay, moving no, on. Wh- I, I want to know what the other four are. All right, uh, go ahead. Which are apparently ahead of us, because if we were there were only two ahead of us, then... It would say top three. It would be the top three. (laughs) All right. Anyway, but I'm sorry. I stopped listening when he said he sees nothing wrong with milk and eggs and that he doesn't see veganism as something, quote, morally correct. Knowing the horrors of the dairy and egg industries, I can't believe what I was hearing. Why would you give someone like this airtime when he doesn't believe in our fight to end all forms of animal exploitation? He obviously doesn't care about animals. Well, you know, who cares about animals and who doesn't? Maybe a complicated question, but I get you. I hear you. If you're going to eat them, it's hard to argue that you care about them. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the same thing as having somebody on the podcast, but I, you know, I, we had plenty of people who shared this point of view. So yeah, I don't know absolutely. what that means for the future. I don't think there are too many people who would fit into this category. Agreed. So I'm not worried we're going to be tortured by decisions as to whether ha- to have best-selling novelists who end up in the New York Times and who write books that have something to do with veganism on. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think it's going to be an issue every day. Yeah. I, I mean, I really appreciate both of those perspectives. Yeah, I do too. I, I really do. I kind of share both of them too. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. And like you said, I mean, the the other thing is we'll get an email from people every now and then that's like, why would you have so-and-so on the podcast? Uh, You know, I hated it. And I'm like, 
then did you turn it off? Like, I mean, we have literally interviewed thousands of people and uh, there are plenty that I don't think everyone would want to hear. I think they're all really, really good. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay. All right. All of my interviews are really, really Ah. good. Maybe some of yours. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Anyway, so thank you for letting us know. We really appreciate hearing from you. Feel free to let us know anytime you want what your thoughts are. We're always we're always interested. I really and I just really do understand the thought of our hen house being a safe space. Sure. Because I have always wanted it to be that because it's a it's a rough world out there for vegans. Yeah. And this is definitely a departure. I think we made pretty clear that it was a departure, but I get that it wasn't a departure you're cool with. So If you're listening to this and you're the person who wrote that, I'm glad you're still here. And I think you will love today's interview. By the way, I just, I think The Vegan was a really good book. Some people hated it. That was another thing. Some people loved the book. Some people hated the book. Oh, Vicky. But people felt strongly about it. That's for sure. I wanted to say that Vicky said to me later that the way that we interpreted it, that the the ending was completely not at all anything she had even considered. And then as, and and when she was listening to our discussion about it, she was like, oh my God, like there was this whole other way of looking at it. That to me is a great book. I can't believe that you and I took the more positive view. I know. That's so unlike me anyway. It's kind of something you would do, but me, I don't know. I, I have to in comparison Balance to you. Things out, yeah, yeah I t- I've told you this before, but one time I was interviewed for another podcast and someone who listens to our hen house wrote to me and was like, I had no idea that you also have a lot of despair because usually <laughs> you have to be the cheery one. See, I, 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 I keep you going. Like I keep you, I, I'm forced yeah. you to be cheerful. Appreciate it. So, so something that is not making me cheerful, in fact, I'm very, very, very upset about this is uh, what's going on with DXA. Why don't you explain? Well, we had an update a while ago about Wayne Chung's conviction. And many of you have probably heard, but uh, he was finally sentenced. And he was sentenced to three months in jail, 90 days, which is a lot better than a lot of us expected, I think. So there's that. And I assume that he will get credit for time served. So he's already been in there for almost a month, I think. There will also be two years of probation. And my understanding is that he will have an order during those two years of probation that he can't communicate with really a lot of the people whom he works with. It is obvious that they are trying, really trying to hit a note where it doesn't sound like he's being, you know, unduly punished by keeping the sentence, you know, if they gave him like a years long sentence, that would make like a lot of press or something, but still doing everything they can to prevent uh, DXE from, from succeeding in any way. That seems to me like what this was specifically designed to do. The other thing is, this is the really bad news is, uh, well, that's bad news. And this is (laughs) even worse that on the same day, three activists who were actually outside the courthouse, I think waiting for the sentencing, but also on their way to the DA's office to report additional cases of animal cruelty. Three of them were arrested and charged with several counts relating to one of the rescues that Wayne had just been um, in, had been involved in Wayne's trial. This was Zoe Rosenberg, Conrad de Jesus and Rocky Chow. They were all taken into custody right there, handcuffed to take it into custody. And Rocky Chow and Conrad de Jesus were charged with uh, several felonies, similar to the ones that Wayne was was charged with. And Zoe was actually charged 
with six misdemeanors and seven felonies, all but one for conspiracy and the other for burglary. And, you know, that's just terrifying. I mean, Zoe is an unbelievable activist. She's also not the healthiest person in the world. She has a disability. They're out to get us. That's for sure. Well, I shouldn't say us because nothing's ha- nothing bad is happening to me. They're out to get DXE and they're out to get anybody who cares about these animals. And, you know, when you look at the travesty of what this trial was, so little evidence of what was happening to the animals was able to be introduced at trial. So that will go up on appeal. That's the whole idea and hopefully make some good law. But it's all very scary. And these are very young people. And my heart bleeds. It really does. I just, it's just awful news. Let's make sure to link to the episode with Zoe that we recorded not that long ago with her and her mom because she's really heroic. And this, I'm very, very jarred by this whole thing. Uh, She's, follow her on Instagram. She's not behind bars yet, uh, or I think she was, she's not right now. So you can follow, she's been doing some writing on this and we will make sure to link to her episode. But yeah, there's a lot going on there. I did not cover this in Rising Anxieties because I wanted to talk about it now rather than the end of the show. But this is classic Rising Anxieties. They are a wreck. They have little to gain from these trials. You know, activists have actually been acquitted at several of them. They're running the risk of acquittals. Now that they have this one conviction, they're probably feeling more confident. But they're desperate. I mean, they don't know what else to do about DXE. I mean, it just shows that what what they're doing is effective. And the industry is terrified that somehow, somehow we are somehow going to get people to look at what they're doing. Once people start looking at what they're doing, it's over. It's just that everybody refuses to look or to think or to act. But, you know, like I always say, there's two groups of people in the world who know what they're doing to animals, and that's us and then them. And all the people in the middle, they just see no evil. Somebody's going to pull those hands off of those people's eyes, and they're going to see it. And and they're really scared about that happening. All right. Well, it is a journey we're on, and I always get excited when I hear about new resources, especially the one that I'm about to tell you about. Connect for Animals is a free, not-for-profit platform for people who want to create a better world for animals, starting by ending factory farming. You can find them at connectforanimals.com, and there you will find events and groups and like-minded people, and you'll learn how to be more effective at advocating for animals. So I just signed up for this myself connectforanimals.com. You can also get it on your mobile device. So be sure to check that out and sign up for that. And you will be able to auto-populate it if you want based on where you are, based on virtual events, conferences. You can look through this through social events, educational events, or activism-related events. So it's very cool. I'm very excited about that. It's very cool. And the most important thing, I think, in becoming an effective activist is finding your people. Because it's very hard to do things on your own. When you put two people together, they're 10 times as effective as, as one person. And when you put a group together, it can increase even more. So this is a great way for people to find their people. And you don't need a, a huge group. Like I said, two people. Give somebody to bounce ideas off and act together. Would, would either of us have a podcast if it wasn't for the fact that we did it together? Like we wouldn't. We would never have done this. And we're so fabulous. 1,000%. Hopefully you can do uh, even better things. But but the fact is that you took one side of it. I took another side of it. And together we had the energy to do it. 
wherever you go, whatever you do. All right. Anyway, on that note, literally, Samantha Derrick is doing great things. She is the founder and executive director of the Plant Futures Initiative, which is a charitable organization, an academic course, and a global student movement with a mission to accelerate the transition to a plant-centric food system. Samantha received her Master's of Public Health from UC Berkeley, and prior to graduate school, worked for a variety of environmental organizations in the U.S., Mexico, and India. She will be joining Marianne right after this. The Culture and Animals Foundation sponsors artists, scholars, and activists in our collective efforts to understand our fellow species more deeply and to further their rights. CAF provides annual grants, an arts prize, a lecture series, and a fellowship. Visit cultureandanimals.org for more information. That's cultureandanimals.org, the Culture and Animals Foundation. Think, create, explore, celebrate. Hey everyone, Jasmine here to remind you that we're in the midst of our year-end fundraising season. If you enjoy our podcasts and believe in the change-making power of vegan indie media, please show your support with a tax-deductible donation to our hen house. The best part is all contributions, modest or massive, made between now and December 31st will be matched up to $25,000, but only if we make our goal. So go to ourhenhouse.org slash support to see our new membership options or to make a one-time donation. Or brand new this year, you can text us to donate. Just text HENHOUSE to 53555. That's H-E-N-H-O-U-S-E, no space, to 53555. We appreciate you so much and couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much for making the world a kinder place. And we hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to our hen house, Samantha. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you, and I'm really excited to hear about this program. I think it's so fascinating, and I think it's so fascinating that it hasn't existed for very long. Like, you just invented this. And let's talk a little bit about how it all started. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you were studying for a master's degree in public health, but you couldn't find the content that you wanted in the program, at least the content that you wanted from your perspective, which, of course, involved food. Am I right? Is that how this started? That's correct. Yes. Yes. I went to school to get my master's in public health at UC Berkeley a few years ago, wanting to focus on animal agriculture and specifically plant-based eating as a solution to a lot of these public health issues that we're facing related to animal agriculture. And I was just surprised that there was no conversation around it in my public health program. There weren't any classes. I mean, it wasn't even a topic of discussion in my courses. They completely left out animal agriculture and plant-based eating. And it was just very surprising to be at a more progressive public health program in the U.S. and to not even be touching on these topics. And a lot of my frustration and the story behind Plant Futures and starting the organization starts there. I'm not even remotely surprised because I find that all the time, but it is unbelievably ridiculous. Just as an aside, I just wanted to mention, I teach animal law at Cornell and I had two students from the business school, I know it's a totally different topic, who wanted to take my course. They actually weren't allowed to, but I let them anyway, but don't tell anybody because there was not one thing at the business school. They wanted to go into 
a plant-based business. That's what they wanted to do with their lives. There was not one course at the business school that had any relevance to that plan. So I don't think this is exclusive to public health at Berkeley. I think this is a problem everywhere. And you are setting out to fix it. Did this actually start by you sitting down and deciding to design the exact course you wanted to take? That is sort of how it started. And it wasn't even planned. I was actually very frustrated that first semester at Berkeley. And I was starting to doubt whether I had even chosen the right grad school program. I knew I wanted to work in the movement for a plant-based food company. So I started doubting, am I even at the right place? I mean, they're not doing anything to prepare me here. And actually that semester, I was taking a course at the business school with Will Rosenzweig, who teaches many of the food innovation courses at the business school at Berkeley. He's one of my mentors, and he's been a great inspiration behind starting Plant Futures. I spoke to him one day, told him about my frustration with Berkeley and not being able to find the right support. And he actually encouraged me. He's like, well, why don't you start something at the university? He said, I get this interest from students all the time wanting to work for plant-based food companies, wanting to get more involved. And we don't have anything at the university. And I think we really need something. So he kind of encouraged me just to take it on as a personal initiative and his class as a class project. So I started working on it, not really thinking it was going to get anywhere. I thought it was just going to be a class project and just kind of ideating and drafting. And it was one of those moments where one thing kind of led to another and the idea started growing. Will got really excited about the class when he saw the first draft of the syllabus I created. And he said, I think there's actually a possibility we can submit this to the university for academic credit. So I really take it on as a personal initiative. That summer, I spent my entire summer internship working on developing the syllabus more thoroughly, thinking about what I would have wanted for myself, what would have been helpful for me when I was at Berkeley to learn more about plant-based food systems and more than anything to get a career and a job in the sector. So I met other students in the process who got really excited about the idea, who started supporting me with the syllabus, um, worked several months on this. And it was many, many iterations of the syllabus, feedback from my professor, from other students, to finally get it to a point where we were ready to submit it to the university. And then submitted it to the university, no idea whether they were going to say yes. I mean, I was actually assuming they were probably going to push back on it. And I remember getting a text from Will one day saying, guess what? The university approved the course. This is going to be launching next year. So I was just so ecstatic and excited about it. But then that meant, oh, now I actually have to teach this course. So Will and I prepared for a few months and we ended up co-teaching the course together in the spring. We had no idea what kind of turnout we were going to have. And to get a course approved at the university and in order for it to continue going, we needed high turnout in the course. We needed students signed up, excited, engaged. And we had no idea. I was like, are there other students besides me who care about this topic? I just didn't know. And we end up marketing the course across campus and launching a two-part class. The first course was a crash weekend intro course to plant-based food systems over two days. And the second class was the challenge lab where students got to work directly with a company or organization from the plant-based food sector for a whole semester. They got real applied learning, hands-on experience, working on real challenges from the sector, from these organizations. That first class, that intro class, we had no idea what the enrollment was going to be like. We ended up having 500 people attending that first semester. We were so excited. I just remember seeing the enrollment numbers going up day after day to a point where we were like, we're going to have to cap this because this is just more than we ever anticipated. So I just remember that feeling and that signal when I started seeing those numbers, realizing this is something students care about. This is something students want to be involved with. And we had students from different campuses emailing us, asking us if they could audit the course and sit in. And that was really the signal behind there is something here and there is something missing, not just at Berkeley, but all of these universities, just seeing the excitement of students from other campuses wanting to be a part of this just showed me too that they're not talking about this at other schools either. And we really, really need more conversation around this topic. So 
that was my first experience at the first course. So much has happened since then, which I'll share more about, but that's how it all started. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And I guess it was because you had Will Rosenzweig, who's a real professor, because normally the high prestige universities, as Berkeley is, don't just hire students to teach courses. Right. I mean, you have to have that connection and somebody with some cloud and some prestige at the university. So that seems like a crucial piece of what happened, at least at Berkeley. We'll talk a little bit more about how you would make that happen at other schools, because I know you want to spread this to other schools. So did you ever make a decision that education was where you wanted to focus your efforts or did this just all kind of happen and if you had us do all over again, would you say education is the place to be when it comes to promoting plant-based foods? It was not where I thought I was going to end up. It was not my intention when I went back to grad school. I didn't think I would end up working in education. But through this personal experience I had and realizing what a gap and it was for me and, and what a challenge it was for me to navigate the university and higher education without access to this information. And then also learning in that process that so many other students were feeling the same way around this topic and wanting to be more involved. I think that was the first signal for me. Well, there's something here. I mean, we should be talking about this. But then the more I worked on it and the more I saw the student response and the engagement we were getting and just the excitement, that was the moment where I knew I mean, I, I wanted to keep working in education because I, I saw such an opportunity there. And I think education, university students are often overlooked in our movement. And we're not thinking quite enough around the role that academia and students can have and really growing this movement and bringing more awareness to what's happening in food systems. And it has been transformational for me. It has been life-changing and I am so excited and I'm set on this path and want to keep working on this path. And I never would have considered it if I hadn't had that personal experience. But now that I'm working on it, I'm really seeing the challenges and the flaws in higher education with how they teach lack of incentive to offer new topics, new curriculum for students. So that's really what we're working on. It's not just teaching about food systems and factory farming and the movement, but also innovating the way that we deliver education through hands-on experience, through multidisciplinary learning as well, which we offer in our course. And it's been just so awesome working in education. And I'm really excited to be in this field because it wasn't part of my plan originally. Yeah, I am excited to hear more about it too. And before we get into the details, and I really want to get into the details, because like I said, I'm an adjunct professor at a university, so I'm not really an insider. But all of these problems that you're talking about seem to be the things I've seen exactly happen, that everybody's in their silo. And as a result, even though you have brilliant people and even very committed people, change doesn't really necessarily happen. So that was the first course. But let's get into now you formed the organization and you're trying to spread this around the world. Let's talk a little bit about that setup and then we'll get into a little bit more of these issues of how the course works and how you encourage students to take it and all of that. So tell us about Plant Futures and the mission and how you're going to take this beyond Berkeley. Are, are you still teaching it at Berkeley or is somebody still teaching it at Berkeley? I am no longer involved with teaching, at least not now. I actually will be taking on a teaching position again next year. But we have a teaching staff. One of my colleagues, Brittany Sartor, teaches the course along with Will Rosenzweig, who continues to teach it. He's still teaching it. Okay. He is. All right. So tell us about Plant Futures. Yes, of course. So Plant Futures is the name of the course that we started at Berkeley. But once we saw that there was an opportunity beyond Berkeley, we had students emailing us from all over the world wanting to audit the course, wanting to join. That's when we saw the signal beyond Berkeley. And we started thinking, how do we get this resources course 
available this information out to students everywhere, not just students enrolled at UC Berkeley. So again, it was one of those moments where Will actually encouraged me. He said, Have, would you consider starting a nonprofit organization, educational nonprofit, so we could build this faster outside of the academic system and make this accessible to students everywhere. Because as I'm sure you know, working within the academic system, within university bureaucracies is extremely slow and bureaucratic. Even our experience at Berkeley, I mean, it took us really from when I started to when the course got launched and approved like a year long. And if we try to do this at every campus, it's going to take us decades to get this going. So we were trying to think of how to innovate it and, and make this move faster. So that was the idea behind starting the nonprofit. So I graduated Berkeley with my master's. I transitioned full-time to starting a nonprofit organization, the Plant Futures Initiative. And since then, we've been able to grow our resources, our programming to so many different campuses across the world. We have 30 universities and our student chapter network. And our student chapter network was a new add-on that we started after I graduated, where we were really trying to activate the plant-based food community on different campuses and get students mobilized to be advocates for plant-based food systems, even outside of the curriculum. So we've also at the same time been working on growing the curriculum and trying to figure out how to make it accessible to students outside of the UC system. We have been growing access to the curriculum as well. We're eventually going to be offering an independent certificate course too. But right now, our focus is still growing the student community, growing the number of campuses and our network, connecting students across campuses, really getting students active and mobilized while they're still in school. And then more than anything, creating the talent pipeline between academia and the industry. So also preparing them for careers, connecting them to the right people, to the right mentors. We have a whole network of professional partners and organizations that we work with as well. So it's really focused on getting students educated, equipped, mobilized, and then also connecting them to jobs and internships in the sector. And most of our work is still in the U.S. We have 30 campuses in the U.S. active in our network, and we have started to expand globally, and we have bigger global expansion plans for next year. Right now, we're actually running a pilot program in Mexico City that we just launched where I live right now, and we're really excited about the potential to launch across Latin America as well, in addition to Asia and Europe. But we've just been super excited to see the traction and the response that we've been getting from students really everywhere. I mean, globally, in addition to the U.S., there seems to be a lot of excitement. And also the same challenges, even globally outside of the U.S., you talk to universities in Latin America, in Mexico, Europe, Asia, and it's the same challenge where they're not equipping students and they're not teaching them about these topics. So that's really where we come in and the gap that we're trying to fill. That's amazing and amazing progress. But it's not like the course is in all of these different places yet. But the course has expanded beyond Berkeley, right? To one or two additional universities. And then we'll talk about the chapters and what they're doing and the other stuff. But the course itself, tell us where you've established it and where you hope to establish it. And I'll get into details once you tell me that. Yeah, sounds great. So, of course, UC Berkeley was the first one to offer for credit. It was actually cross-listed at the business school and at the public health school, but it was open and available to students across all academic disciplines. It's a multidisciplinary course, and it actually took us quite a while to get it structured that way. They're not traditionally set up that way to students in different programs that work together. And that was something we were really pushing for, especially for food systems challenges. I mean, we need people from all backgrounds working together to solve these systemic challenges. So it didn't feel right to just offer it to business students or to just offer it to public health students. We wanted students from all programs. So we were able to get it set up as a multidisciplinary program at Berkeley, which was a huge win for us. But then once we started thinking beyond Berkeley, we started reaching out to other departments, other campuses, other schools. Naturally, the UC system felt the right direction to move in since we're already connected to the other University of California. California campuses. So the first school to offer in addition to UC Berkeley was UCLA. 
um, which we were really excited to get them on board. And then Harvard offered it about a year later through their government department with more of a policy focus, which was really exciting. So they actually adapted our curriculum, took the Plan Futures Lab, and then their challenges, projects, organizations they're working with were more policy and government side. So Harvard, UCLA, UC Berkeley, and then Stanford offered it to a couple of their students for credit. They were actually able to join the Berkeley course, but receive credit through Stanford. So we learned a lot through that process around like getting it established for credit and how it works. And through that process also learned how slow it is and how painfully slow and bureaucratic it is to do that. So then we started trying to think, how do we innovate and make this available even faster? So right now we're actually working on developing a certificate program that exists independent of the university system where students anywhere in the world are going to be able to sign up and take the course so that we can make this accessible faster to students. We're still in in process of making that. But in the meantime, um, one very exciting thing that happened just the last few months, we got a grant from the University of California school system to offer it across all 10 UC campuses next year which is another huge one for us and something that we weren't expecting. So right now we're actually mostly focused on preparing this new UC course that's going to be launching next fall. And then the next step after that, we'll be working more on the certificate program. So it's been kind of one step at a time, slowly growing. And the idea is to make this information accessible to students everywhere. So it's not just restricted to certain students at certain campuses. It sure doesn't sound like you're slowly growing. It sounds like you're lightning, <laughs> lightning fast growing. <laughs> All right, so it's going to be a course in some universities, a course that people will attend and have a professor. And who teaches it? Do you have to find a professor in each of these schools? How much of it is online, if anything? And I know there's a mentorship program that is linked to it. I just don't understand exactly how it works. Let's start with the schools, which are currently UC Berkeley, UCLA, Harvard, but with a little different twist, where it's an actual university course. In each of those schools, do you find a professor who's interested in teaching it or does it work some other way? Yeah, so it's been a little bit different campus to campus. So one thing that has actually worked to our advantage is that this whole program started completely online and virtual because it's actually started right around when the pandemic started. So we didn't really have a choice but to offer this online. So that is actually one reason we've been able to reach so many students from so many campuses. We were able to open it up. That first course that we offered with 500 students, it was just incredible. We had students from all over the world joining us. And we've been able to reach so many students because of that online offering. And it's also also been challenging for us, of course, trying to innovate how to keep students engaged and active in an online community. I think it's something a lot of organizations and classes have been going through the last couple of years with this shift in culture. But that has allowed us to reach so many more students. So UCLA, for example, they actually allowed their students to join the online Berkeley course, but they're receiving credit through UCLA and it's showing up as a UCLA course on their transcript. We did need to find faculty advisors at UCLA to sign off on that. So we found two faculty who have been advisors for us from the beginning who are very excited about what we were doing at UCLA and decided the best first path forward is to get the UCLA students enrolled in the Berkeley course taken online. Eventually, I think they want to branch out and offer their own course, but at least for UCLA, that's how it's worked so far. Harvard offered their own independent course separate from us. So Sparsha Saha at Harvard, who's also one of our faculty advisors, and she's just incredible, took it on, took the initiative to teach it at Harvard herself and offered it independently of Berkeley, but using the curriculum that we had built and adapting it to have more of a policy program. So that was Harvard. Stanford, similar to UCLA, their students enrolled in our course. Next year, we offered across the 10 UC campuses. It's going to be an online virtual class. So I'm actually going to be co-teaching it myself with one of my colleagues. And we're going to have students from all the UC campuses coming together virtually as well. 
And the Berkeley course, which continues to run for every semester, it's been so popular among students that we started offering it every semester. It used to just be offered once a year, but we've been able to expand that offering, which has been exciting. And the Berkeley course is actually offered in a hybrid model right now. So students will go into Berkeley in the classroom about once or twice a month to meet with their team and the teaching team. And the rest of the class is virtual. So we've been adapting and innovating each semester, getting feedback from students as far as what works. But we're always thinking about how do we deliver this education so that's most effective and most impactful for students. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I hope to my audience, I'm not asking too many questions about how this exactly works because I teach and I know how complicated the schools are. I'm just fascinated that you managed to make this work. And I think really COVID probably did really help you out. Like there was this huge revelation, which I think a lot of universities are in some resistance about now that, you know, the buildings really aren't that necessary. (laughs) All of this infrastructure isn't really what it's all about. All right. So I understand now everybody in the California system will be able to get credit because you have a real course there. And in Harvard, that's the same thing because you had a professor there who was willing to take it on. And then in other places, you're either going to try to expand that or do a certificate program. And I want to hear about the certificate and what it involves and what advantage it is to anybody to get that certificate. But first, I just want to make clear, is it true that the academic level of the students in this course runs the whole gamut from undergraduate to PhD? Is it open to anybody at any level? Exactly. Undergrad to PhD, any academic discipline, any academic background, which has actually been the most challenging part to set up with the university to get it structured that way. But it's also been one of the most rewarding parts both for the students and for the professional partners working with the students. It's what we call silo busting, getting students out of their silos, getting them to think together with more of a systems lens. And because our whole course revolves around food systems and systemic issues, it just makes sense that all of these students would need to come together to solve these skills and not just have it siloed in one academic department. So that's been something at the core of what we're thinking about and how we're delivering education is how do we present this with the multidisciplinary and systemic lens and how do we get students from different backgrounds, lived experiences. We have freshman students who have never worked in their life all the way to PhD and master's students who've had several years of work and research experience. And seeing them come together to talk about these food systems issues is just fascinating. And what they deliver when you put them together in the same room and you put their minds together is just incredible. And I think every semester you just see the companies and the organizations blown away by the work that these students are producing. Their level of talent and also just interest and dedication and commitment to wanting to work in the food system and do something about it. I mean, there's been data coming out around Gen Z students. I think 80% of Gen Z students are looking for careers that are aligned with their values, which is higher than we've ever seen before. And I'm even seeing something in our students that I didn't even see when I was in school, just like their level of awareness, wanting to do something about climate change, about animal rights, about social justice is just at a level that I never saw when I was in school at a conversation. So there's just a huge missed opportunity if we are not equipping these students to work for a movement to work to change a food system, they're going to go off to other jobs. And that's where universities really need to step it up. We need the talent to solve these systemic food issues. Otherwise, we're going to be faced with very scary issues and not enough people to solve them. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. That's really, really exciting, the work that you're doing. You mentioned that people are from all different disciplines. I know you probably can't cover them all, but just give us a flavor of where people are coming from to take this course. Absolutely. Public health, which is a program I did. MBA students from the business school. We've had data science, software engineering, nutrition students, 
really all over the spectrum, but we always have a core group of students coming from the public health program and from the business school, just because that's where the course is hosted. And because it, it fits so well with both of those topics, you have the innovation and the entrepreneurship students coming from the business school wanting to be involved in the sector. You have students more similar to my background, public health, nutrition, more interested in like food access, food equity, um, addressing systemic issues in the food system. So it's really been all over the place. Yeah, no, that's very exciting. And of course, it makes total sense since, you know, we all eat and we all live in the world. So those things are kind of important to everybody, no matter what they're doing academically. All right, tell us about the certificate program. What do students get out of that? Do they get any kind of credit at their university? The certificate program is actually new. It's in development. And we actually just piloted our first official certificate through the Plant Futures Initiative, which is new. And really the intention behind that is that students have recognition for the work that they're doing, something they can put on their resume, something that they can communicate to employers without having to be enrolled at one of these campuses. So once we started this course a few years ago, semester after semester, I mean, we were getting students from so many different campuses wanting to be part of this course. And it just felt like we were excluding a ton of students by saying, well, no, you have to be a UC Berkeley student and we want to make this information accessible. So we're always thinking, how do we make this move faster? So the certificate is a way for students from any campus to be able to enroll in the course. We're going to be iterating with a few different courses to see what works. The first certificate program that we just launched and we actually just finished our first cohort of students is through a course called an Impact Lab, which is a shorter iteration of the Challenge Lab. The Challenge Lab is a 14-week course that we've offered at UC Berkeley for various semesters where they work directly with companies on a team of three to four students from different backgrounds to solve a challenge that that company is having. So everything from like Tofurky, Miyoko's, Plant-Based Food Association, Dea, some of the bigger, more established companies to some of the smaller startups, all mix of organizations. The Impact Lab, which just offered a few months ago for the first time, is a shorter version of that, just a few weeks working on a smaller innovation project with the company. We think of it as just rapid exposure to industry, to organizations. And for them, it's like if they have a quick challenge or idea where they need the feedback of students. They have an opportunity to work on this challenge with students for a few weeks. It's quick. They get a chance to work with other students at the company and they deliver something very incredible at the end, which for the company, oftentimes those outsources to consultants or outside sources where they can't find that type of talent or just quick information they're looking for. And they have access to that through our program through these students. And a lot of these students are looking for ways. How do they get more hands-on experience? How do they get connections to companies, to networks. They work with a mentor from the company for those few weeks as well. So they get direct mentorship. So it's really a win-win. And as a result of that course, because this is the first one that's offered independent of the traditional university system, we're offering them an independent certificate through the nonprofit instead that they can then add to their resumes, their LinkedIn, their profiles when they're searching for jobs. Yeah, that seems like a great way to go, given how difficult it would be to try to get this accepted at every university. But do you have hopes that if there are enough students at a particular university or participating in this, that it will encourage schools to get a little bit more on the ball about maybe signing on to your course? I think it will. Yeah. Schools do respond to students. If there is enough student demand and enough students speaking up for something, that's kind of how this happened at Berkeley. You absolutely need the faculty support and having Will made a huge difference, but they needed to see the student interest too. And I think because we had so many hundreds of students sign up that first year, they saw the interest. Like They've actually approved it to continue on semester after semester because they continue to see the student turnout and how much students are engaging with their course. So I'm hopeful that 
as this expands through the nonprofit as well, universities will respond to that. They'll see it's something that students care about and it benefits the university too if they're offering courses that students are excited about and they want to go to that university because maybe they see the Plant Futures course offered there. So it really is a benefit for them. And one of the unexpected things was this UC grant across online campuses. I don't think anyone on our team was expecting to get recognition from online campuses that quickly. And I think that was because they saw Berkeley and UCLA responding. They saw how much student interest there was. So I am hopeful, like you said, as this grows, that more universities will respond and hopefully make an effort to offer it through their campus as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely see that happening. Can you just give me a hint of what kind of projects students work on? I guess the scope of a project would be very different depending on whether they're taking this as an academic course in California or at Harvard or doing the certificate program where they're not getting academic credit, but they're building their career. But I guess the deliverables on the part of the student would be different. But can you give us kind of an idea of what it is that they work with? And perhaps do you work with the mentors to try to come up with the good projects that would be appropriate for the students or how does that work? Yeah, so we actually have a whole team and colleagues of mine who work directly with our professional partners on everything from scoping the project ahead of the class, like what is a project that would benefit the company, but that will also benefit students that's multidisciplinary. How do we offer something that students from all backgrounds can come together and work on to solve? And then thinking of a deliverable that would be valuable and helpful for the company. So we kind of think of it and describe it to the companies as a fast track internship except it's a course where they're receiving academic credit. But it's similar in that structure where they're working on a real challenge that the company is having. And we've had a whole variety of challenges. I can give you a few examples. And what's interesting is you start to see patterns across companies that as a type of challenges they're having in the plant-based sector. And you see a lot of companies and organizations are struggling with the same issues, whether it's how do we message this product to consumers? Do we label this product as vegan or plant-based? Who is our target audience? How do we reach Gen Z consumers with this product? How do we message the nutritional benefits of this product? Other companies have actually worked with undergraduate students to create an entire social media TikTok video campaign to market their product to Gen Z consumers. And for them, it was just perfect. They were basically working directly with their target audiences, the people, the audiences they wanted to reach. They had an opportunity with these students who are just brilliant with social media and delivered this incredible strategy that they actually took to their VP of marketing and implemented into their company, which is amazing. We've worked with more established companies who are offering new products. We worked with one that was offering a new vegan cheese, and they were trying to figure out like the cell culture fermentation process and how you communicate the health benefit to consumers, how to make this something that consumers are going to pay attention and care about. So those are just a few examples. We've worked more on the policy side. We've even worked with some farming organizations as well, implementing more sustainable practices. And I think one thing that makes us unique is that we offer everything from farming to CPG to policy and everything in between. And we attract students from so many different academic disciplines working on these projects and really are intentional about covering the entire food system and not just products, which students are very excited about and products and CPG are absolutely a big part of what we do, but we cover so much more. There's a wide breadth of topics and challenges that students are working on as well. Yeah, that sounds very exciting. And it also sounds really useful. I mean, I've worked at places where, you know, an intern comes in somebody's kid or something <laughs> in the worst case scenario. The people who are working there haven't been giving any guidance about what kind of work, and, you know, most work in a company is not suitable for somebody who's not working there and doesn't know how to do it. So it's so helpful that you're there to work with these mentoring companies to come up with the projects where you can really be of value to them and they're not just doing you a favor. And it sounds like that's really been the case. 
Exactly. And each semester, we're learning more about what's most helpful to companies and what's most helpful for students. So we're taking all those learnings and supporting companies in that process of scoping something. I think oftentimes they have so many challenges and so many different projects students could work on. They're almost overwhelmed. We're like, we don't know which one to choose. So we help them through that process. Like, let's narrow it down. Let's look at this. Let's see what's going to be most helpful for you and also for the students. So yeah, our team plays a big role in that. Now, you had mentioned before the chapter network and that you have chapters in universities in this country and starting to have chapters in other countries as well. What exactly is the role of the chapters? Yeah, there were a few different ideas that came up in this conversation we were creating the curriculum at Berkeley where the chapter network originated from. So part of it was wanting to make our programming and our resources accessible to students who are not at UC Berkeley or where our course was hosted. And thinking about how to get students just engaged, not just with the course, but the broader vision of our movement, which is connecting students to jobs, the plant-based food sector to help accelerate the transition to a plant-centric food system, which is really the mission we're behind. And we want to help grow this movement. We want to support companies, students who are looking for values-aligned careers. And we wanted to find a way to keep students engaged. All the students who audited that first course, that first semester, all the students reaching out to us in email, it just felt like a missed opportunity if we were only continuing to engage with UC Berkeley students. So we were thinking, how do we do this in the meantime, until we can get a curriculum everywhere, what's a way to keep students active and involved with our movement and what we're doing? So that's where the idea of student chapters came up. And it's pretty much equivalent of a student club or a student organization. It's a, it's a chapter network where we're basically going to universities, we're finding the right students or right faculty members, whoever's involved or whoever's interested in, in this topic, plant-centric food systems, and activating them and guiding them and starting a community on their campus around this. And it has looked very different campus to campus. They've done everything from career networking events, food sampling events. One of our chapters actually did a whole vegan football tailgating event, which was fascinating to see. And I think what sets this apart, at least from what I saw when I was in school, I was very active in the animal rights club when I was an undergrad at Berkeley. But what I noticed is that it felt very niche and very siloed. And you were kind of seeing the same people over and over. It was all the vegans or mostly vegans. So we're trying to think, how do we reach wider? How do we think bigger and reach more students? So one of the things we've done through the chapter network and have been very intentional about is the way that we message our work. It's very plant-centric. Even though a lot of our team is vegan, we don't necessarily identify ourselves as a vegan organization. It's more plant-centric. And we've been able to draw so many students from different backgrounds who identify as kind of plant-curious or flexitarian. They're not quite there yet, but they're starting to think about it. And they want a community they can be a part of where they don't necessarily have to feel like, oh, well, I'm either vegan or I'm not, or I'm either an animal rights activist or not. And that has been actually a very successful strategy for us to expand across campuses. We've drawn thousands of students from different campuses to our chapter network from all different lived experiences, backgrounds. Most of them do not identify as vegan or vegetarian, which has been surprising to see. Most of the students are, are not. There are many vegan and vegetarians in our course, but that's been really exciting because those are the students we're trying to reach and we want to reach with their program to get them thinking about the role of food in their life, the role of building a career in their life. And so many students from our chapter network reach back out to us later saying that either the chapter or even the curriculum changed them to becoming vegan or to eating more plant-based or to working for plant-based companies. So that's where I get excited is just seeing the potential as a scales to get more students involved and aware of what we're doing. And one thing we noticed at the chapter network too, it's also changing the culture around plant-based eating. And that's what we're trying to do, making it more inclusive making it fun and making it exciting. So students throw plant-based food parties and potlucks. Like I said, we've had vegan football events and tailgates. So we're reaching students. I mean, we've 
reached MBA students, PhD, master's of public health students who wouldn't normally be thinking about plant-based eating or like, let's say, a vegan or animal rights club. But they've come to our program. And I think that's where we see a lot of potential is to continue to reach these students and think outside of the box and how to just make it a more inclusive movement. That's been our strategy. And we've been very successful. I mean, it's getting to the point where universities are reaching out to us wanting to start chapters. And our team is pretty much at capacity with what we're able to do right now because we have 30 active chapters, which has been really exciting. But we are starting to think like big and globally and how it's just going to look like to scale um, on other campuses. But it's been very exciting and it's been a learning experience for us too. I mean, we're learning a lot. There's still a lot we don't know. There's still a lot that we adapt as we go. And a lot of it, I mean, this is a student-led movement. So we're always taking feedback from our students and adjusting to what speaks to them and what's most effective for them. Wow. Sounds really exciting. And in your spare time, I understand you're also working on a film project. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons this film project started is because we are starting a pilot program in Mexico for Plant Futures. And as we think globally, Mexico seemed like a first natural transition. One, because I'm physically living here. I have Mexican heritage. My mom is from Mexico. So I have very close ties to Mexico. And I've always seen the role of food and Food is a huge part of culture here, of course, but specifically plant-based eating. And I think it's something that a lot of people are not aware of, that the native Mexican diet is actually predominantly plant-based. Like We were eating a lot of plant-based foods. You see even here the access to these huge markets of produce and fruits and vegetables. When I moved to Mexico City about a year and a half ago, and in addition to just a lot of the native foods that are very accessible that are plant-based... I saw this huge boom in vegan restaurants, startups, businesses that I had not seen in Mexico even five to 10 years ago. I mean, recently, the vegan plant-based food scene here has expanded so quickly. I actually call it vegan capital of the world because I've never seen so much vegan food concentrated in restaurants in one place. And I just saw how quickly the movement here was growing and similar to U.S., how few universities were talking about plant-based eating on their campuses or even equipping students. I mean, there isn't a single plant-based food course that I've seen in Mexico yet since I moved here. So we saw it as an opportunity to expand our program to Mexico and run a pilot here. So that's what we've been doing. And the film project is going to be telling the story of the plant-based movement in Mexico, specifically with the role of animal rights and how the animal rights movement has played a huge role in growing and accelerating the growth of the plant-based food movement and businesses in Mexico. There's a huge animal rights scene here, which is just incredible. And they have done so much to really grow the movement. So our video is going to put all of those pieces together, the role of the animal rights movement, the history of Mexico, how that plays into it, and everything else that's happening globally that has caused this huge rise in, in consumption and plant-based eating in Mexico and in Latin America more broadly in recent years. But I really see Mexico as being the leader of Latin America right now for the plant-based food movement. So this film project is going to capture that story and tell the story of what's happening as we continue to grow our program and, and hope to attract more students to our movement here as well. Oh, that's very exciting. I can't wait to see it. Now I feel like I have to go to Mexico. <laughs> you should come. We could talk about that on our bonus segment because I want to talk about food. Yeah. But before I close out this part of the interview, I know you have a major event coming up in February and I want to make sure that you have a chance to talk about that too. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Plant Futures Fest is going to be in Oakland at the end of February and we're super excited. This is actually our first off-campus event. We've had on-campus events at Berkeley. We had a big one last year that had an awesome turnout, but each year our events grow and grow and we get more students and attendees. We wanted to host something off-campus that's even bigger, more accessible to students 
not just the Bay Area, but everywhere. We're going to be having students from different parts of the country joining us. We have an incredible keynote speaker, Brian Terry. Seth Tibbet from Tilburg is going to be there. We have several other speakers in line that we're very excited about. And this event is going to be specifically more around career, networking, and food. And of course, education is going to be built into it. Most of our events up until this point have been more educational. They've been hosted through the university. We've had all these incredible guest speakers talk about all these amazing topics. But this is the first one that's going to be a little bit different from what we usually do. Because again, this is feedback that we get from students and from companies. They want more food. They want more career networking opportunities. They want more chance to just hang out and, and meet the community and speak. So we basically are creating what we've been talking about and envisioning and, and an event from feedback that we've gotten the last few years and in Oakland for the first time, which we're super excited. And we very recently announced the event and we have early bird tickets until the end of this year for anyone in the Bay Area, really anywhere who's interested in coming from other parts of the country too. I'll be there and my whole team will be there too. And we're very excited about that. You guys have a lot going on, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> all right, so if there are students listening or people who know students who are listening, what should they do to find out if there's a chapter available? And if not, find out how they can get one or how they can get a course at their university or next steps. Absolutely. For one, our website has most of the information you're going to need. You can actually go on our website, see a map and a list of all of the chapters that are active in our network. If you do not see your chapter there and you're interested in starting a chapter, there is contact information on there. There's a form you can fill out or you can email someone on our team directly. Our contact information should be on the website, but mine is easy. Samantha at planfuturesinitiative.org. Our website is just planfuturesinitiative.org. And the last two things and the easiest way to stay in touch with our programming and everything we're up to is our Instagram page, which is Plant Futures Official, and subscribing to our newsletter. And you can find the link to that on our website right. as well. But those are the easiest ways to get in contact. And we hope that you'll join. Great. I'm sure people will because you are very inspiring. Oh, I feel like we got twice as much information into this interview as was warranted because you talk really fast and you get a lot of information and that is such an enormous talent. <laughs> I don't know how you think that fast. So thank you so much for everything you're doing. You talk fast and you do things fast too because this is amazing. I can't believe that you brainstormed the start of this during the pandemic. It just doesn't seem that long ago. So <laughs> thanks for joining us today on our Hen House. It's really been fun. And thank you so much for having me and for all the incredible work you're doing too. It's been really great meeting you and, and chatting. Appreciate it. It's that time of year. Start spreading the news about all the reasons to say no to animal gifting campaigns like those promoted by Heifer International, Oxfam, World Vision, and so many others, and support plant-based feeding gifts instead. A well-fed world runs a program called Plants for Hunger, it's the number four, which is a plant-based hunger relief program that feeds people while protecting animals and the planet. Instead of using animal-based foods or gifting live animals, your donation supports plant-based food and farming projects serving some of the world's most impoverished communities. And it's not just gifts. While designed as a gift donation program, you can also just donate directly, once or recurring. All styles are critically important and tremendously appreciated. Visit plantsforhunger.org to find out more. That's Plants for Hunger with the number four. Anxieties are rising. I bet you didn't know 
according to the title of our, our first story today, that dairy sets babies' brains up for success. I wonder then why there are so many stupid people who drink dairy. This, this is by Caitlin Allen. It's on Horde's Dairy Man. And, you know, as usual, it's just such bullshit. She starts off by saying dairy product nutrition education has long emphasized the benefits of milk's essential nutrients provide for the body. Uh, yeah, it has. It, that doesn't mean, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go into it. So their whole point is that you need to have milk, obviously. She goes on to say, what has been less well known but is now moving into the spotlight is how important dairy also is for the brain, particularly during a child's first thousand days, which covers prenatal development up until the second birthday. So they're talking about both the baby in the womb and the kid up until the kid is two. They're supposed to be drinking milk. Otherwise, they're going to be stupid. So the key nutrients for brain development, she says, during pregnancy are vitamin D, iron, choline, iodine, folate, and DHA. She's only talking about dairy having any relevance to the first four on that list, which is good. So let's go through them. All right. First one, vitamin D. She says, fortification provides milk with high levels of vitamin D, which a fetus in the womb relies entirely on its mother for. Well, at least she's not lying, though it does kind of slide by, doesn't it? Yeah, they fortify the milk with, with vitamin D. You can fortify anything with vitamin D and give it to a pregnant mother or a baby. Um, and, you know, and the baby, not one word in here about the possibility that the child might be getting mother's milk. They just they forgot that that even exists. So uh, yeah, the vitamin D thing, biggest scam in animal husbandry. They put vitamin D in the milk. All right, the next one is iron. Well, yeah, we obviously need iron. When fetal iron levels are deficient, the brain cannot develop normally. Of course, there's iron in loads and loads and loads of foods. So you know, not an issue. I think it's choline. I don't even know what that is, but apparently it's one of the B vitamins. So I thought I would look it up because, you know, I don't know how much choline you need. According to this article, it's an under-recognized nutrient and 90% of Americans do not consume the recommended amount. So that is a problem. And it is found mostly in animal products. And she narrowed it down even further by saying there are just 10 major food sources of choline and dairy is one of them. All right, so there are or there are 10. <laughs> like, this hardly means that you mean need dairy. And I actually looked up on, on the NIH site, which says choline is a nutrient that is found in many foods. Your brain and nervous system needed to regulate memory, mood, muscle control. Obviously, it is important but it's in many foods. And that is not just animal foods. It's in meat, eggs, poultry, fish, and dairy products. Okay. It's in potatoes. It's in cruciferous vegetables. It's it's in beans. It's in nuts. It's in seeds. It's in whole grains. All right. So much for that one. Iodine. Iodine is necessary. And iodine is not in that many things. I will give you that according to this nutritionist that she's citing, half of women of childbearing age never or rarely use salt. What? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe that's true. But God, I wish I was as disciplined as they are. I use too much salt. But anyway, most of us get iodine because they put it in salt. Iodized salt, you know, as you probably know. 
So she said, what's probably the most critical source of iodine in the U.S. is dairy. I'm pretty sure the most critical source is salt, iodized salt. But, you know, it's good for people not to use salt. So if they're not, that's, that's all great. And there aren't a lot of other sources. However, why? Why is there a lot of iodine in dairy food? According to this study, also from the NIH, it has a lot to do with how much iodine they feed to the cows. Yeah, you could feed the iodine to yourself instead of to the cows. And also the fact that they use iodine to sterilize the, the, the teats. So you get the iodine in the milk. You can't make this stuff up, I'm telling you. And I don't have to. I'm here to report it. And, you know, and as I said, like not one mention in here of breast milk for babies, which of course is a really, a really good source of everything. I have to set up the next story by, by telling you about another story. There's a, a story very recently on Watt Poultry. DXE accidentally made case for why Leader belongs in jail. And what they are talking about, of course, is Wayne Shung's conviction, for which he got three months in prison. And what this story is trying to point out is just how dangerous the DXE activity was because of avian flu. And they points out this past Friday, the USDA updated its website to include the latest confirmed cases of highly pathogenic avian influenza. And two of those cases were in Sonoma County, California. Oh my God, that's just where the DXE activity was. There is, of course, also a lot of highly pathogenic avian influenza all over the country, but we're talking about the ones in Sonoma. And they, there were two flocks that were infected that this report talked about, and more of a quarter of a million birds had to had to be euthanized in order to help prevent the spread of the virus. That's a quarter of a million birds died. They don't care. They're going to still keep doing what they're doing. Was this Wayne Shung's fault? Hard to believe since this activity from DXA took place years ago. <laughs> So unless highly pathogenic avian influenza has just been hanging around waiting for him to go on trial, uh, yeah, unlikely. But, you know, according to this article, DXE revealed where it was that the crimes for which he was convicted and sentenced took place, and they were Sunrise Farms and Reichardt. I don't think he was convicted for the Reichardt activity. And both locations, as DXE so kindly pointed out, are both in Sonoma County. Hmm, he says. I should have named him. Who's this? Ray, Roy Graber. Hmm, Roy says. Since APHIS does not directly identify the farms that are affected, we cannot be certain that these were the same facilities. And I'm not a virologist, nor am I a veterinarian. Exactly what are you, Roy? So I'm not going to say these birds contracted HPAI because DXE members brought the virus onto the firm onto the farm, but we also cannot rule it out. Well, actually, yeah, we kind of can. This, this happened years ago. Oh my God, these people are idiots. But coincidence or not, it does create food for thought as to why people should not trespass on farms where animals are raised, no matter how well-intentioned they believe they are doing. And of course, of course, this is their big argument. I mean, this is one of their really big arguments. And, and it is true that birds are dying by the gazillions of this disease and, and they can catch it. So it is an issue. And I know that the DXE people have, you know, taken a lot of precautions, especially in their more recent activity of using all sorts of really intense biosecurity protocols and wearing these, you know, these white hazmat things, which brings me to the story that i actually was just setting up with that story. Hunters urged to practice biosecurity this season. 
This is also from Watt Poultry. This is about hunters who happen to also be chicken farmers. Hunters participating in deer and fall bird season, i.e. hunters are people who are going out to kill deer and birds, should be aware of the risk of HPAI in wildlife and use measures to prevent transmission to domestic poultry flocks. Well, no shit, Sherlock. I mean, this is where they get it. Like there's, there's this disease is in wild birds and that's how domestic poultry gets infected. So let's see what, what dramatic precautions they're suggesting people should take who want to go out and kill birds, but also want to have birds at home that they're going to kill and don't want the birds at home to die before they get a chance to kill them because that's important. If you hunt game or wild birds and own domestic poultry, do not wear hunting clothes or footwear while you are in with your birds, says Miranda Meehan, who's an extension livestock environmental stewardship specialist. (laughs) That's her title. Infected birds shed bird flu viruses in their saliva, mucus, and feces. Like, don't wear hunting clothes or footwear. Yeah, change your shoes when (laughs) you go out and kill birds. That is about as primitive a, a precaution as anyone could take. Points out that wild birds can be infected without showing symptoms of the infection, so so you don't really know whether you've been infected or not. Though it also advises people that they should be aware of what steps to take if they see sick or deceased wildlife, which you know. But I thought you couldn't tell if they if they had it. Like all right. All poultry owners, no matter the size, should practice good biosecurity to protect their flock. Things that they suggest, if you've been out walking in fields or wetlands while hunting, be sure to change clothing and footwear before crossing the clean, dirty line to care for your flock. I I kind of already said that one, but they're repeating themselves. Do not walk or drive trucks, tractors, or equipment through areas where waterfowl or other wildlife feces may be, and then presumably like, then drive it into your into your into the yard outside your where your chickens are if your dog has interacted with wildlife take measures to keep them away from poultry so they're even letting their dogs go into the chicken houses there's a bunch of other things too but you don't really know them you get the point it's all wayne shung's fault all right finally this is something that's been on my mind a little bit this article you know as so often happens made me realize that the industry is worrying about things too and they don't really know what they're doing either This is from the Writer's Block column by Thomas Johnston on Meeting Place, and the title of this particular article is Not So Fast. And what he's talking about is automating slaughterhouses. And, you know, they, like, the fact is, in my opinion, they, or not not just slaughterhouses, yeah, slaughterhouses, I guess he's mostly talking about here, they are dying to not have, (laughs) literally, the animals are dying. They really, really want to get people out of there. They don't want to have to hire people. Like they want it to be all automated. They want these animals to go from birth to death without a person ever having to get involved. And, you know, that's kind of this horrible vision I have, but apparently it's a lot, lot harder than I'm imagining. He starts off by saying, visit almost any meat processing operation across the country. Well, no thanks. And besides which, they won't let me in. And take inventory of its challenges and invariably labor or lack thereof is number one. Among the solutions discussed also invariably is automation. Well, yeah, I mean, it's true that they're always talking about how they can't keep people employed because let's face it, it's like the worst job on the planet. And because they pay shit, like pay people, as I always say, like stop complaining about labor, just pay more and you'll get people to work for you. 
But in an industry whose products are disassembled from heterogeneous animal carcasses, an industry that requires as much art as science. Have you always thought of slaughtering and disassembling animals as an art? The use of automated equipment isn't always a silver bullet. And this is where their anxieties are coming in. Like it's not, they don't have a fix here. Automated equipment and processes can, as operators relay, lower the need for manual labor and even do so without eliminating jobs. Of course, they're, you know, what they really want to do is eliminate jobs. But they say that the equipment can account for repetitive menial tasks and for workers foster new knowledge and training that leads to better paying positions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're going to take all of those immigrants on the line and and train them and then employ all of them in better paying positions like what are the machines going to be doing yeah like like this makes sense for about two and a half seconds until you think about it all right a labor that perpetual thorn punctures this side. Even with automated systems, labor is still a critical need. Considering the consistent churning of humans in and out of processing facilities, that's a disgusting image, isn't it? Those systems can pose a problem if no one has the necessary training and experience to use it or worse, fix it if it malfunctions. And, you know, they're making the point that, you, you know, you always need people and now people are going to be doing even more complicated and difficult things. And if you can't keep them employed, it's going to be even harder to replace them and put you in more trouble if they leave. And this is a, an instance he's talking about. When you install an automated case packing line and the most qualified operator gives their notice a month later, true story, have you sufficiently cross-trained others to keep things moving? Yeah, well, like I said, Face the fact that this is like the worst job in the planet. Nobody wants to have it. You have to pay people really, really a lot. And now if they're going to have to be trained and actually have skills, you're going to have to pay them even more. So step up to the plate, folks. And then the meat will cost more. And then maybe, maybe everybody will stop buying it. That's my plan. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. If you enjoy the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We understand that not everyone is in a position to contribute financially. And of course, I love you all no matter what, but we have had a rather challenging year. So if you are able, we could really use your help. And this is the perfect time to make a donation because between now and December 31st, all contributions will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000 if we make it to the 25,000. And so listen to me, we have so many exciting announcements. We have revamped our membership options. We would be totally honored if you would join our Flock Friends community starting at $10 a month or $100 a year. So visit ourhenhouse.org slash support to check out our new tiered membership levels with really great names, by the way. You can be a part of our Chick Click, our Squawk Squad, our Henhouse Heroes, or of course our Barnyard Benefactors. Some of the perks include weekly bonus content, access to our engaging flock exclusive spaces in our online community, and get this, monthly invitations to join Marianne and me live in the audience for a virtual recording of an Our Henhouse podcast interview where you can meet the guest and ask questions for the bonus segment. 
And listen, also, since we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, your donation is fully tax deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you appreciate our henhouse and if you believe in our mission to mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, and if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of independent media, please make a donation before December 31st and your donation will be matched. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated and tax deductible to the full extent of the law. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org support. That's ourhenhouse.org support. Another great way to support us is to give us five stars on Spotify or leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us and leave reviews where you are able to on social media. Just find us at Our Hen House. And if you're one of the listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Walenska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so, so much for your support, your compassion, and for your dedication to animals. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye.